Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Audio Pelago, a podcast about Indonesia from New Mandala. I'm Liam Gammon and I'm the editor of New Mandala and this month we're going to consider the Javanese language and the question of why don't presidential candidates and presidents speak Javanese more often, given that most of them are Javanese. I'll be talking to Bayou Dardias and George Quinn, and we're going to use that question as a jumping off point to consider the state of the Javanese language in 2018 and some of the politics of the use of Javanese in public life. But we've got a presidential election campaign on right now, and as usual, we're first going to just chat about the latest developments in politics. And to do that, I'm joined by Dr. Eve Warburton, who's a research fellow at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute in Singapore. Um, Eve, how are you going? Hi, Liam. I'm good. How are you? Um, all right. Um, so you and I were chatting a moment ago about what the big stories in politics and, and particularly the presidential campaign have been over the past month. And I guess more than anything else, what stands out is the fact that there so far isn't a lot of drama. Um, and I wonder, is that just because Prabowo hasn't really fired up? Um, I mentioned uh, last month that the, the, this whole campaign seems a bit like the Sandy Uno show, and, and I stand by that because really Prabowo hasn't really been out on the hustings much. If you look at his social media feeds, he's really only campaigning one or two days a week and um, doesn't really seem to have the kind of, <laughs> I guess, the, the aggressiveness that we came to know in 2014. I mean, what's uh, what do you reckon? That's right. And, and he's not adding anything new or creative to his to his sort of political identity. I mean, he's literally just pulling out the same tropes that he used back in 2014. He's a cent- and but but with less sort of passion and enthusiasm. And yes, you're right. He's you can tell he's only going to the field a few days a week. And of course, why would you? I mean, he's so less well resourced than he was uh, back in 2014, both in terms of the size of his coalition, the money that he has access to. Um, he's down in the polls and he's up against um, an incumbent, a very, very strong incumbent who who looks very likely to win. Despite all that, you know, he's still sitting at like 32%, right, electability. He's still, he's very stable. His popularity is very stable. And even despite what we are calling this kind of slightly um, less exciting, less enthusiastic campaign from Paboy, Grindra is doing really well in the polls. It's still really enjoying this coattail effect from Prabowo's nomination, um, and I think that's interesting and important and obviously very good news for all the legislative candidates <laughs> running on the Garindra ticket in April. Yeah, I mean, you, men- you mentioned a moment ago that pro- the possibility that Prabowo is kind of disheartened by the fact that it looks like Jokowi is going to win mm. easily. I'm not sure mm. I really agree with that. I think you look at the mm. polls, it's pretty close, and like you said, he does have a very strong base, electoral base to build off. If he right. really put his back into it, Jokowi is very beatable. So the yeah. question is, why is Prabowo not going hard this time? You know, I, I wrote it at, at New Mandala back in March, kind of, you know, 
suggesting that Provo probably wasn't going to run. So I didn't really, I didn't really, uh, I didn't really nail that prediction. So take everything I'm going to say with a grain of salt there. But but I do maintain at, at the time it was very clear that he really was ambivalent about the idea of standing for president again, um, and that the 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 people who really wanted Provo to run were the people around him in Garindra who needed him on the ticket in order for Garindra to stay relevant and to to basically even stay in parliament. My, my suspicion was that uh, Prabowo never really cared much whether Gurindra outlasted him. Like many other populist politicians, typically they're not really that interested in party building. Mm. And don't forget, you know, there there is this. What most people believe is that, and is that, and people talk about this openly, is that you know Sandy will run in twenty twenty four. So for Sandy, the stakes are higher, right? He's He's, this isn't for his, the campaign, he's putting so much energy into this campaign because it's not just about 2019. Whether win or lose, he will run for president in 2024 and Govindra will be that vehicle. So we actually have two men here now who have, um, we have another man now who, who's set to take over the party, who, who is invested in, in, in creating a strong party that lasts beyond Prabowo. And we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but um, I, I, you know, I think we probably do have to start thinking about Govindra as 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 not solely Prabowo's presidential vehicle, that there is a plan that's beyond um, be, that goes beyond Prabowo himself. I don't know. Again, pure speculation. <laughs> mm, oh no, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think um, the thing about Garindra is that after this election, it basically ceases to be a personal vehicle party for Prabowo because this is his last chance. And it becomes much more like just a normal Indonesian patronage-based party that seeks... Well, I mean, I think it's it's realistic to assume, in my opinion, that if Garindra, if, if Prabowo loses this time around, Garindra will seek to become a part of a re-elected Jokowi government. That that would be my that would be my bet. Um, and who knows, maybe Sandi Uno ingratiates himself with Jokowi and tries to become the um, the heir apparent. I mean, who knows? There are all sorts of scenarios. But I don't think Garindra is going to play this um, oppositional role that it's that it's been forced to over the past, you know, well, ever since its founding. Yeah, and we should also have probably prefaced this whole conversation with the caveat that we are still months away from the actual election and who knows, like Prabowo, it's such a long campaign period that um, Prabowo might not even begin to really invest his energy in the campaign until February. And then everything we're saying now could just sound completely irrelevant and he may go hard and the, uh, the money may flow and he and Sandy become this much more sort of compelling unit and they run a really, really solid campaign against Jokowi. Who knows? It's just, it's too early to tell really, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's the that's not only the Gurindra line in public, but the, that's something right. they're spreading around in private. Oh, oh just, just you wait, don't worry. Come, come January, exactly. February, he'll kick into gear. And so will SBY, apparently. That's when SBY will start campaigning, hmm. which of course will be just, you know, so useful and <laughs> such, a, such a force on the campaign trail these days. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of people who are over the hill. Um, so, I mean, lest we get carried away with the idea of this being a, a big nothing election, um, I mean, uh, you can you can make this case that the pettiness of the campaign springs from this sense of polarisation and hyper-partisanship. Um, mm. So I, I wonder 
if we could just talk about that for a moment, because that that seeming contradiction between the the intense partisanship and the fact that we have so much research now that suggests that actually there's really not that much ideological or programmatic polarization in in Indonesia. Um, yeah. How do you how do you make sense of that 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 paradox? Yeah. Well, you know, for for many many years. That that was the the kind of the consensus amongst Indonesia analysts, right? That it was, it was that there wasn't enough polarization actually in the Indonesian political system. That um, all the parties are pretty much the same. People people's votes are kind of bought. Um, campaigns are really personalistic, not programmatic. That the system is really really fragmented, and so no one even used the word polarized or polarization in Indonesia really until 2014, right? Then you add the Ahok crisis and. And and then you add social media, and if you if you just got your if you just kind of looked at the, at social media conversations between the Chagoi and Prabowo team, you would feel like this was a really kind of intensely polarized political landscape. But then, as you said, even today, when you do polls of um, you know people's opinions on a whole range of socioeconomic problems or program uh, policy issues, um, that most people kind of cluster around the center. Most Indonesians are pretty moderate. Um, there's not a huge degree of difference between the opinions of a Garindra supporter, a PKS supporter, and a Golkar supporter. If you ask them about welfare or redistribution, and even even on issues of like the role of Islam in public life, um, that's where you get kind of PDIP, the party that's always been the kind of you know the the, the pluralist party, the one who is. Um, you know, represented the pluralist constituency within Indonesia, you get them on one flank and you get PKS and Pepiga on the other. But you still get a lot of mix of grey in the middle, you know, where, where a lot of people are very centrist on these issues. Um, it's not like America where um, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you hold really, really strong op uh, opinions about a whole range of social issues and you're not willing to compromise on them. And we just don't have evidence of that kind of polarization in Indonesia. Um, but at the same time, as you were saying, like people who are, who do hold kind of the, who you would sort of place on the more kind of liberal, nominally secular or quite moderate sort of end of, you'd place on the, that end of the spectrum in Indonesia. Those people feel like they're living in a much more polarized society, I think, especially post AHOC crisis. Um, because, and we do have evidence in the polls as well of Indonesia becoming a more religiously conservative and intolerant sort of society. Um, there are some polls that indicate that. And so I think what people feel is that they're un the, the liberals feel they're under siege and that they, they, they no longer have a voice in the political, uh, in, polit in the political scene anymore. And I think that that's, that's true, but that's not polarization. I think that's the bigger problem for Indonesian society is this kind of, um, majoritarianism, the kind of Islamic majority or religious majoritarianism. So, so that I think is what we're seeing in Indonesia rather than a deep, a society that's becoming more and more deeply polarized. I, I don't know what you think. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, those would be, <clears throat> those would be my thoughts exactly. And so yeah. the question becomes, I mean, on, on what basis, on, on what basis do Indonesians divide themselves into such political tribes as exist? And I mean, I should tip my hat here to a, a, a an article written by Dan Slater and Aris Arogai on this idea of polarizing figures that in societies yeah. where you don't have these longstanding uh, ideological cleavages within society, you can still get polarization that is induced by the arrival of some uh, populist whom 
some people right. consider to be illegitimate. And the, the, the obvious examples here in Southeast Asia would be people like Duterte or Taksin. Um, mm. And, I mean, Jokowi, obviously, much milder, uh, much milder example. Yeah. But, but I think yeah. there's, there's part of that in play. Exactly. You know, it's all, it's all, it does feel very much like it's a kind of a cult of personality, you know, when it comes to both Jokowi and Prabowo. There's certainly very little to separate them programmatically. And as you said, people who support either Prabowo or Jokowi, they, you can't really divide them in terms of their um, their programmatic preferences. Um, once Jokowi has finished his two terms in office and once Prabowo is no longer on the political scene, will we even be talking about polarization when it's like Ridwan Kamil versus Santiago Uno? Um, I don't know. It will depend very much on how these politicians, what they choose to mobilize, I think, in their campaigns. Okay, so we were talking about 2024, right? Um, and if I asked you to name off the top of your head the most obvious candidates for president 2024, let's 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 go go do let's do this on the assumption that Jokowi is going to get back in, and okay. there's going to be an empty chair in 2024. Who are the yeah. most obvious candidates today? Ridwan Kamil, current governor of West Java, Santiago Uno, uh, Anis Baswedan, and. Um, Eric Tohir. Okay, and let me ask you. Who do you think? Oh no, no, I, I agree. But here's the fun question: no. What stands out to you about those people? Uh, they're all relatively young. Well, they won't be that young by the time they run. They, I feel like I'm missing the point here. Just, just put me out of my misery. What is it about them that you picked up? Because I've got all the obvious answers. Okay. <laughs> Um, not, oh, no, that's not true. Yeah. None of them are Javanese. Oh, that's your segue. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. None of them are Javanese. But what is Anis Baswedan besides Katurun and Arab? What is he? What's his other half? Um, uh, yeah, look, I mean, Anis does have Javanese ancestry and he did, and he did grow up in Jogja. But I'd say that, you know, he's more than anything else, I guess, identified as a, as a, as a sort of politician of, of Arab descent. But I mean, I know it's not. Yeah, poli- a, yeah. It's not. I know it's not politically correct to ascribe ethnic identities to people <laughs> without asking them about it. But you know, <laughs> before anyone emails me, yeah, you know, I'm just going to do it anyway. But you no, know, no. I mean, in, in my defence, I would say that none of those candidates um, would, you know, market themselves as being ethnically Javanese. Uh, although Anis is. Again, perhaps a slight exception to that. Um, And I certainly think that Indonesians, by and large, would not identify uh, would not identify those guys as being uh, Javanese candidates. And that's interesting because obviously um, it's one of the big truisms of Indonesian politics that only a Javanese can be elected president. Um, if you yeah. look at the 2010 census, about 95 million Indonesians self-identified as ethnic Javanese. And obviously that makes them the biggest ethnic group in the country with about 40% of the population. And if you look at history, six out of seven presidents have been Javanese. Um, since the introduction of direct presidential elections in 2004, we arguably haven't even really seen uh, a competitive non-Javanese presidential candidate. So... With that in mind, one might wonder, why don't we hear more of this?
ngeten lho Bapak Ibu Kulau niku napa? Asring kesupen. Niki kan sampun mlebet Jawa Tengah nggih. Saya pikir masih di Jakarta. So, many listeners will have correctly guessed that that is the voice of President Joko Widodo. And a lot of you will have guessed also that he was speaking Javanese. We're going to talk about what's significant about that fact in a moment. Uh, but first, though, I'd like to introduce my guests today, who are two scholars and aficionados of Javanese language and culture. Bayu Dardias is a lecturer at the Department of Politics and Government at Universidad Gajamada in Yogyakarta. He's completing his PhD research at the Department of Political and Social Change here at the ANU. Uh, Bayu, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kliam, for having me. So you're researching, uh, you might say, the political economy of aristocracies yes. in post-Suharto Indonesia. But yes. you're doing a lot of research particularly on the Sultanate in, in Yogyakarta, right? Yes. Uh, and I'm very happy to have with us as well uh, Dr. George Quinn, who's Honorary Professor at the ANU School of Culture, History and Language, and who for many years taught and researched Indonesian languages and literatures here at the ANU and elsewhere, but with a particular emphasis on Javanese. Uh, but George, you've also had a lot of interest in popular religious practice in, in Java and elsewhere in Indonesia, and I believe this has culminated in a new book, right? That's right. The title of the book is Bandit Saints of Java, and it should be out before the end of November. It's about the practice of local pilgrimage in Java and Madura. So I want to talk about politicians speaking Javanese in a moment, but uh, we'd better start off with just putting this issue in context. So, George, when we talk about the community of Javanese speakers in Indonesia, I mean, exactly how big a proportion of the Indonesian population are we, are we talking about there? It's not really a straightforward question to answer because Javanese is quite a diverse language and some people might not uh, say that they or think that they speak Javanese if they come from some of the fringe areas, uh, despite the fact that uh, they do speak Javanese. But uh, usually um, the estimate of the number of speakers of Javanese is uh, between 80 and 100 million. I would say 80 million plus a little. That's the estimate given by the head of the official language agency in Indonesia, which means that uh, speakers of Javanese account for probably just on a third of the population of Indonesia. 80 million people. I mean, we put that in a global context. Where does that rank amongst world languages? Because I imagine that it probably outnumbers some European languages or other Southeast Asian languages, right? It, it does indeed. Uh, Javanese is one of the biggest languages in the world, but also um, one of the, shall we say, a language with a low profile. It has its ranks about number 11 or number 12 in terms of size among the languages of the world. But because it is not the official language of a country and not even the official language of a province or a, a state, um, it doesn't have the kind of um, official status that an official language would have. So it has a rather a low profile among the major languages of the world. But it, certainly it is bigger than, than Korean, bigger than Vietnamese, bigger than Italian, bigger than German, uh, bigger than Polish, for example. Uh, so it is not a small language at all. So with those facts established, let's return to that little clip 
that we just listened to of Jokowi speaking Javanese. So this was uh, while he was campaigning for president in 2014. He was in the Banyumas region of the far western part of central Java province. What's significant about this for me was the fact that I had trawled YouTube um, and I thought I was pretty thorough and I could barely find any examples of Jokowi speaking Javanese. Now, Jokowi, of course, is ethnic Javanese. So was his predecessor, Susilu Bambang Yudhoyono. So was his predecessor, Megawati Sukarnaputri, and her predecessor, Abdurrahman Wahid. And you'd really struggle to find footage or even audio or even accounts in the print media of their speaking Javanese in a public context. So, given that this is, this is the, the native language of perhaps a third of Indonesia's population, why don't Indonesia's Javanese presidents and presidential candidates speak Javanese more? Well, um, let's first return to the what is Jokowi. He's quite good in addressing these uh, footers because... Jokowi is not using um, the Chroma language with this audience in Banyumas. He's using some kind of mix between the lower level, the lowest level, the Ngoko, and also some Indonesian. And, and actually, at this point, we should probably clarify for listeners that it's this, this issue of registers or levels in Javanese that makes it, uh, to non-native speakers, quite a difficult language to learn. So w- would you be able to just take a moment to explain what you mean by ngoko, kromo? Well, um, there are at least three different levels of Javanese. The highest is the kromo, the highest. And the second one is kromo matio, which is for, uh, for those who are speaking with the... Um, with the older people or those who is being respected. And the lowest one is Ngoko, to talk to everybody. So I think most of most of Javanese can talk in the lowest language in Ngoko, but not at the second and the highest level. Maybe I'm just going to add, add that. But what I would like to, um, to answer about your question is that Javanese is important. Talking Javanese is important, but in political sense... Two Japanese is not good for politician. So if we return to Pak Jo's explanation about the numbers, about 80 million is not, is not quite a safe number. It's not majority. If in terms of elect, uh, electoral, for instance, in terms of voters, it's around 40, uh, maybe 35 to 45. So it's in Indonesian political sense, being Japanese is good. You need to be Japanese to be elected. But if you to Japanese, the other ethnicity will gonna be feel rejected, and this is not good for your uh, for your election for your voters. So, I think Jokowi and also all other presidential candidates try to make a distance between become Japanese but not Japanese, not to exclude the other ethnic. I think yes, that's that's right. I would agree with that. That uh, Jokowi is the a symbol of the state. And especially in public announce, uh, in public uh, addresses, he would not want to use uh, a language which is a local language because that would seem to be run counter to his role as the unifying symbol of the whole of the Indonesian nation. But there is another factor here, and that is that um, in public, normally if you're speaking in public in Javanese, you would speak in high Javanese. Uh, that's the formal register that you would normally use in public pronouncements. 
in the clip that you uh, have played for us, Jokowi is uh, speaking in low Javanese. It's not really a public kind of context. He's mixing with the people and he's using low Javanese, but he's speaking the low Javanese of central Java, whereas he's in Banyumas, who speak a quite a different dialect. And Javanese people seem to just love this play between one dialect and another, between the Banyumas dialect and the central Java dialect that the president speaks. And much or some of what the joking in the clip that you played um, is, uh, revolves around this play between the local dialect and the central Java dialect. Mm. So that's why so many people are laughing. <laughs> that, that's uh, quite that's interesting because, I mean, look, it's a universal feature of politics that politicians try and make their language a bit more down-to-earth when they want to, yes. again, seem close to the voters. It sounds like, I mean, in Javanese, it seems to me it's a little bit more complicated. That's, that's right. The, uh, if someone is of high social status or old, they speak down in low Javanese. But if someone is of low social status and uh, they are, or they are poor or they are very young, they will speak up in high Javanese as a sign of respect to the person that they are addressing who is above them in social status or perhaps distant from them in social distance. So uh, it's not a question of high high-level people using high-level language. No, in fact, it's the opposite. You, so using so using um, Noko Javanese, the low Javanese, is that endearing, is that uh, familiar, or it is, is it condescending? Uh, I, it, it can be condescending if it's in some context, but not in this particular context. Uh, so uh, and the interesting thing about this is that he's... The, the crowd, the people who are around him, are 100% Javanese. If there were representatives of other ethnic groups in that in that crowd, then he wouldn't have been able to use or wouldn't have wanted to use Javanese. So it really is <clears throat> Javanese talking to Javanese and using the, shall we say, using in-jokes uh, that are familiar to all Javanese in order to, um, shall we say, uh, get a bit of favour, curry favour with the, with the local people, I think. Mm, definitely. By the way, the language that, uh, as Bayou said, the language that Jokowi used in fact, was not pure Javanese, at least not pure Javanese as the people of central Java would see it. It was mixed with Indonesian. So even there, uh, Indonesian is creeping in to what he's saying. So, I mean, Bayou, going back to, for instance, uh, Jokowi's predecessor, Esperye, or maybe one president back to Ibu Megawati, do you have many memories of them dropping Javanese into their public into their public speech? Well, um, SBY, of course talking English more than Javanese, that's what I know. <laughs> so, but um, if we look at the, um, the origin of these two, two presidents, Joko is actually coming from the center of the Javanese culture. He's coming from Solo, while the other two, for instance, Megawati is raised in Jakarta, and SBY is coming from, well, Kwatko Periphery in the, in the Pachitan, which is have a different, like Pak just said, different level of, uh, of, of dialect. So um, I think if we're looking at the uh, electoral purposes of the language, we also need to see the rest ethnic other than Javanese. So Javanese, the rest, the second biggest, I think, is Sunda, is around 15 Fifteen percent, and the rest is around three percent. So, in order to um, uh, to get too close to the audience, to the voters, the president needs to talk in Indonesian because there is no other alternative. For instance, even even 
Jokowi has uh, a non-Javanese as the vice president, Yusuf Kala. What language should Yusuf Kala use? He has no other alternative rather than using Bahasa Indonesia. So I think uh, this kind of um, uh, ethnic gap between Javanese and other ethnicity is also important to see in terms of uh, gaining uh, voters. So, I mean, I guess to sum up, what you gain by ingratiating yourself with the Javanese grassroots by speaking Javanese, you lose by appearing ethnically exclusive. Is that a good way to think about it? I think that yeah, sums I it think up. So, yeah. yes. so maybe that principle applies in the democratic era, but let's uh, cast our minds back to the new order. Now, I have to disclose that I'm actually too young to remember the new order, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think uh, I will turn to you guys uh, for a, a history lesson. Suharto uh, was quite well known for dropping Javanese phrases, Javanese idioms and aphorisms into his everyday speech, both behind the scenes and in, in public speeches as well occasionally. I mean, in your memory, how much of his public persona was um, shaped by his use of, of Javanese? And, I mean, do you think that that also has leg- has left a legacy in terms of the, the acceptability of public figures speaking Javanese today? Liam, I had the interesting experience back in the 1990s uh, of attending a Javanese language congress and it was opened by President Suharto. He came to the congress uh, and I met him and shook hands with him uh, and he went onto the stage with a speech in the national language, Indonesian. But partway through his speech, he simply threw, he literally threw the sheets of paper away and turned to the audience and gave his speech in a mixture of Indonesian and Javanese. Mm. And in that speech, he used the letters of the Javanese alphabet, the Honotoroko alphabet, to explain his philosophy of life, starting with the first letter and going through the first five letters, Honotoroko. We know that in, in, in Suharto's day, he was often seen as a kind of Samar-like figure, a person who is... He was responsible for the Super Samar, the uh, the decree that brought him to power in uh, in 1966, and uh, so he is um, he is associated with all sorts of ways with symbols which come out of Javanese um, shadow theatre and Javanese culture in general. And he was able to give a speech, as I said, on the esoteric meaning of the letters of the Javanese alphabet. Well, I think what was happened during the Suharta was the Javanization of Indonesian politics. So basically, he tried to create a regime that is based on what Pak George says, all the Javanese philosophy. He, for instance, at that time, there is a quite a very popular quote about Semu Menteri, Bupati, and Dupak Kuli. It means that the ministry just need to, to show their facial expression and people already know what to do. But for those who have the lower level, they have to tell directly. So it's this kind of uh, culture is is a Japanese culture is very embedded in the in the um, Indonesian politics. So what what happened was that uh, Suharto tried to create a regime which is very much based on the Japanese philosophy. And I think we should bear in mind that this um, Javanese character of the central government is actually not something brand new in the, uh, in, at the time of the New Order. Uh, the, the basic symbols of Indonesia at the time Indonesia proclaimed its independence are drawn in large part from Javanese tradition. 
Uh, the Garuda eagle, for example, is fr comes out of Javanese tradition. The very s the very motto of Indonesia, Bineka Tunggal Ika, comes from Old Javanese. Pancasila is a Javanese word uh, derived ultimately from India. These all these basic symbols of Indonesia were created in the 1940s, and they come out of Javanese culture. In fact, it's even said that um, that uh, and Javanese themselves believe that the first president Sukarno uh, consulted with the ancient king of the Javanese Joyoboyo uh, in order to get legitimacy to become president of the new Indonesia. Mm. Let's let's turn back to contemporary presidents. There's little doubt, is there, that that Jokowi. Uh, who grew up in central Java in Solo, um, who went to university in Yogyakarta, who was the mayor of Solo for near on a decade. Uh, there's little doubt, is there, that he speaks very good Javanese in, in, in all levels. So I guess what I wonder is, when he's among fellow Javanese, is it your understanding that he speaks Javanese behind closed doors? Uh, well, um, I got information from inside the palace that he he's using Bahasa Indonesia inside the palace except for greetings so maybe if uh, the first one or two minutes he would like to use Japanese oh pripun kabare pak oh saya saya stoyo tanten keluarga pripun sehat something like that and after that he's um, he's talking Bahasa Indonesia but I would like to see Jokowi not as a president but also as a father because if we see from Kaisang's uh, flock in YouTube, so this, this is we're referring to Kaisang Pangara, who's Jokowi's yes. son, who's Jokowi's also actually son. a very funny sort of YouTube personality. Yes, so um, we we can see how Jokowi's language expression during this kind of video. So it seems that inside the family, even inside the Jokowi family, he used Bahasa Indonesia because father tends to talk on the language that he always used at home. And in the vlog, it's really clear that Jokov used Bahasa Indonesia. Well, some words in Java, well, he commented on Kaisang uh, quite a uh, uh, hairstyle, but most of them are in Bahasa Indonesia. It seems that Jokowi used Bahasa Indonesia inside his house. So for someone who's obviously so steeped in uh, Javanese society as, as Jokowi, why would he use Indonesian with fellow people from central Java? Because we know there are an awful lot of people from central Java working in the palace. Well, I think um, it is because there is a level of refinement in the Japanese language. It is quite hard for Jokowi to express himself on the correct way with other peoples. For instance... What do you mean by that? Well... In Javanese, if you should talk on the pro appropriate level to other people, if you are not, there is two possibilities. You are discrediting the, um, the, the person you are talked to, or you value yourself too high. So Jokowi doesn't want to have this kind of problem. For instance, if he talked to Sultan of Jogja, for instance, mm -hmm. what kind of language he should use? Mm. So if you use the higher level, a chroma, so become a president, is it higher than becoming a sultan? So what kind of use that he has to use? Mm. So this kind of kind of uh, mix, whether he used the correct level of Javanese to other people, might 
get him trouble. So it's better just use Bahasa Indonesia with quite equal to everyone so he can express it without this kind of problem. And you can imagine uh, this gets uh, somewhat complicated in the case of a, a president from Solo, perhaps. Yes. If he were to speak Javanese to people around him, um, yeah, like you say, what, what register of Javanese should he speak to the Sultan of Jogjakarta? What should he speak to Ibu Megawati? Um, yeah. Or, say, a cabinet minister, for instance. So this, this all makes you think it's not a particularly egalitarian language, is it? Uh, you can understand why some people would feel that it's not a language that's particularly well adapted to the complexity of class relations in contemporary Indonesia. George, you're keeping an eye on the state of the Javanese language uh, in the 21st century. What's your feeling? I mean, is there a sense that the way that the language works is incompatible with uh, increasingly egalitarian social values? Many people have that point of view, and I can sympathise with it. But um, if you talk to language conservatives in, in Java, they will say it's exactly the opposite. They will say Javanese requires you by its very form, to be respectful, to be respectful of everyone. Just like if you're in France, uh, you have no choice but to choose between tu and vous. Uh, vous is a respectful form that you must use if you're speaking to someone who is not known to you. Uh, and you don't have a choice, really. You can't address the president, for example, as tu. You have to refer to him as vous. And now if you can imagine that distinction multiplied a thousand times over in the basic vocabulary of Javanese. That's what you have in Javanese. And many Javanese people would say that compels them to be polite or ultra-polite to everyone that they come across when they are speaking Javanese. So they don't actually, many people don't actually see it as undemocratic at all, but in fact as enforcing politeness. On the other side, is there a sense that young people are turning away from Javanese? Because um, if, like you say, it doesn't really have a lot of prominence in the education system or in official settings, um, what's keeping the language alive, if anything? I think uh, the young people keep talking maybe in lower Japanese. So they may be hard for them to talk uh, to in the middle or even the higher level. So that's why if they talk to their peers, it seems that they still use Japanese. But if they talk to the older people or those with higher social status, they, they prefer to talk in Bahasa Indonesia. I think that's quite right, that the command of the refined respect usage of Javanese is in decline, especially in the cities. Um, and for many um, of the, for example, teachers of Javanese, they assume that if the mastery of Koromo, that is refined uh, respectful Javanese is in decline, then the whole language is in decline, and that's not true. Uh, the, I think, as Bayou says, uh, the command of bread and butter Javanese is still good among young people, uh, and uh, it's just that it's the refined forms that are in decline. Uh, so, in fact, in some places, the, the bread and butter form of Javanese is developing and burgeoning in quite an extraordinary way. Uh, so it's not at all um, becoming moribund. It's very vigorous. Just, just finally, we've we've talked a bit about the reasons why uh, Javanese presidents have been been reluctant uh, to speak Javanese in public. Nevertheless, um, the way that Jokowi speaks Bahasa Indonesia is 
unmistakably Javanese, isn't it? Uh, and you could say the same of some other previous presidents, uh, uh, Megawati, I would say, um, Gustur as well, and, and definitely Suharto, because he has a quite distinctive accent, which Indonesians would describe as Madok, right? Madok, yes. So, so Bayou, please enlighten us as to what Madok means. Well, um, well, this is quite hard because my English is also Madok. So, <laughs> <laughs> give, Mad- give it a go. <laughs> Madok means um, Madok means everyone's know that when you are talking Bahasa Indonesia, and this is ah, oh, must be coming from Central or Yogyakarta, something like that. To my, you know, obviously Anglophone ears, uh, the. Uh, the Madoc accent really is when, when distinctively Javanese uh, vowel and consonant sounds sort of intrude into Indonesian. Mm. I mean, there are certain vowels and consonants in Javanese that don't appear in either Indonesian or English, which is one of the things, along with the registers, that make it a little bit difficult for non-native speakers to, to, to master. Um, just briefly, do you think that uh, Jokowi's slightly Madoc accent is on balance an electoral asset I don't think the Amando accent has any to, any relation with this election thing. People just aware of it. Okay, it's just Mado, Bahasa Indonesia nya Mado, something like that. So people just understand it. But I don't think that have a have a impact on the election. Mm. Yes, I think I would agree with that. Um, Jokowi uh, has obviously taken in the remarks that are made about what he's called Kampungan, his kind of hillbilly or or um, uh, his 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 uh, village style, and he sometimes uses that to his advantage. In fact, in the clip that you played, he actually makes a joking reference to his face mm-hmm. as being not a kind of a refined, high-class face, but being a the face of a villager. And I think that may work in his uh, to his advantage, because uh, many people. Uh, appreciate the fact that he has a kind of a village or a local background. He's not excessively refined, just as Suharto often did. Suharto often emphasised his village origins as a way of uh, collecting electoral support. Mm. Just before we go, Bayou, would you be able to explain to listeners the proper way to pronounce the president's name? Jokowi Toto. Okay. Any Australian broadcasters, please, um, please commit that to memory because I've, uh, you know, I, and I, I, I shouldn't, I'm throwing stones in glass houses because I mispronounce Indonesian words all the time, but um, I've heard some shocking butchering of, of poor Jokowi's name there. Gentlemen, thank you very much um, for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Liam. Have a pleasure for having me. So, as George said, uh, despite some people's concerns about the long-term health or even the survival of higher levels of Javanese, there has nevertheless long been, and still is, a really vibrant local Javanese pop culture. And a great example of the creativity you're seeing today as part of this is a guy called Alif Rizki, who's become a bit of a minor celebrity in Indonesia by recording Javanese language covers of Western and Indonesian pop songs at his YouTube channel. So I thought I'd take us out today with his number one song, which has got about 15 million views so far. Uh, if the one thing you needed in your life was a Javanese cover of Despacito, here it is. This is Alev Rizki featuring Faza Yubdina with Dek Lastri. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
Miss West mikir no awak edewe Senajan ngono ora bakal kulali Lali Ya awak kuis koyo wong ora normal Peng ngomong marang aku santai emas Dan aku salah ku jaluk pangapuro Dek lastri Oh ijo dumeng ngono tode 